Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to another episode of Any Honey and the Newt. We have had a very exciting summer. We've had the Olympics, you know, the 2020 Olympics were delayed a year. We had a, a late playoff season that ran right up to the Olympics. We've had Summer League just finished. We're in the midst of free agency and a lot of trades, and the draft happened a week and a half ago. So it's been a very busy summer of activity in basketball. What do you think about all of this uh, summer raucous basketball activity? This free agent season was so short, and the playoffs just felt so long by comparison. Uh, normally, I look forward to free agency more, but then Summer League happens, you know, and it's just like just the right amount of time off that I'm excited for basketball again. And I have to be honest, I watched like one game and I was like, I'm bored. <laughs> I, needed a long, <laughs> I needed a longer break from basketball. I was so burnt out. I couldn't even watch any of the Olympic games. I watched highlights of most of the U.S. games and a couple of the Australia games, uh, but I just didn't have it in me to sit through a whole game. <laughs> yeah, been, I forgot in my recap. It's been a lot of basketball. Yeah, I forgot in my recap that the Olympic basketball, which is normally something I get really into also because it was like a week after the playoffs started, uh, finished. I mean, they were doing their like uh, uh, exhibition games during the finals. And so yeah. like, I didn't even have time to like sit there and dream of the what if scenarios and then imagine like all the things that are going to happen in free agency because it all just happened back to back to back. <laughs> right. Instead of getting excited with a lot of anticipation, it's just been trying to keep up with the news. Yeah. So but that's interesting that you put it that way because the whole what if scenario and this... Uh, imagining what's going to happen with our team now that we've got the great rookie that we just drafted or the big trade that we just made. I feel like summer is that that time of the year that we just go crazy with our basketball narratives. Yeah, exactly. There's like, to me, there's a few stages that happens, right? There's uh, the, the things that you think are going to happen. So you start imagining all the scenarios. Um, but then there's the news cycle, right? And so you're... Uh, you're taking that information and trying to process it and then think about what the next stage is, which is that part is actually to me too. And I don't know if we want to just jump into and define those three terms that I'm hinting at here or just keep pushing it down the road. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's fine to just be a little transparent with our audience. We plan to do two to three episodes on these three concepts that are closely related and we're just having a hard time breaking them up into discrete pieces. So we're going to have a, a nice uh, conversation about interpretation, imagination, and reflection, and then see if it's something worthy of breaking up into multiple episodes or just try and keep it to one. Yeah, so where do we go from here? Well, <clears throat> maybe just uh, before we start trying to figure out what we mean by these terms... Um, just explain a little bit more about why these topics are related to the summer uh, hypotheses and, and all the exciting um, kind of stories that we try to tell ourselves about the next season. I thought you said the next season. <laughs> <laughs> There's a misinterpretation for you. <laughs> right. And a lot of imagination necessary. <laughs> 
yeah, I was starting to get there, right, with my little illusions. But really, you know, we're talking about, like I said, with the end of the season happens, in that lull right between the draft and free agency and summer league, right, play, uh, fans, and I guess coaches and, and the front office, they start to, to pick out scenarios for what's going to happen at the next stage. And then they start to, I guess you, in order to put together these plans, right, you sort of have to imagine what, what, how one thing is going to lead to another. Um, but even before you get to that imagination stage, you have to do all this interpretation with whatever are your outputs, your inputs, your variables within the scenarios. Um, you have to go on, you know, the, I almost said propaganda, but that's not quite the right word. The, the rumor mill cycle of like, oh, there's this rumor going around that X player is going to this team. And here are the signs that indicate that, right? So there's some interpretation process as you try and figure out as you're the GM of the team, whether these things are aligning in your favor or against your favor and you make contingency plans and whether you go through with contingency A over B based on what you're hearing. And then there's, to me, one of the most important parts of this, I guess it's like a cycle, the reflection cycle, right? Where when things actually start happening, happening, you have to reflect on those things just to be able to be able to take your next step to go back to the interpretation, go back to the imagination cycle. So to me, they're they're all part of the same. Uh, right now, there's a triangle, but I feel like something's missing. Uh, that's not part of our conversation today. Uh, of just uh, of like this decision making, uh, but to me, you know, as an educator, the the learning cycle, the process of learning. I bet you just hinted at that because that's that's what we're trying to build up to right we're not saying that this is these are the three legs of a stool that can stand on its own these are in addition to value and and some of the other things that we've already talked about subjectivity these are three more elements of subjectivity that ultimately we're trying to understand what does it mean to learn something and um to think like to really make a decision and think so uh with that in mind i do just kind of want to say it's different you know, you mentioned all the different perspectives. You could be a general manager trying to make decisions about how to move forward for the team. You could be a player, like, waiting to find out what your future is going to be. But I, I think the summer hype is really, it's the moment where it's the most interactive for fans, right? Because you've got all this activity that's hidden from sight. So, so you know stuff is happening. You want to talk about it, but you don't know what it is. So you've got rumor mills. You've got people speculating, throwing up the craziest trade possibilities just because they the what if. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Speaking of the what, what if, if. Yeah. The Marvel verse. <laughs> right, right. What are the possibilities that could excite us or it could give us a, a new way of looking at it? Um, and so I feel like people do. This is the interactive stage of being a fan in the NBA. You know, your team hasn't lost any games yet. So every every fan can be excited about the next season. Yeah, it's the only time when the Knicks and the Lakers have the same record. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So uh, let's just kind of try and get our heads around what these terms might mean, uh, how we might be using them, and see if we can flesh them out in a little bit more concrete detail. Um, so interpretation. I have a, a rough stab at what I think... How I've, how I've used this term, and I want to see what you think about it. Sure. Uh, maybe the idea of processing, incoming, stimuli, and thoughts 
into a form of understanding, into a way of understanding something. So we can talk about interpreting a text, interpreting somebody's speech, interpreting a situation, you know, uh, just generally something's coming in and we're trying to make sense of it. And the way that we make sense of it is our interpretation of that thing. Yeah, and I think um, across different uh, subject areas, the use of the word interpretation generally means the same thing. Well, you know, basically defined as that. Even from a learning sense, it's it's all about making meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, to use the phrase making meaning, though, I think imagination can also be a type of making meaning, right? So what is maybe the difference between interpreting something and imagining something? Yeah, I, I, I guess I've never really um, thought about it this way, I, uh, the way that I'm about to say it, because uh, we have used, not we, me and you, but we in the museum industry um, use the term making meaning as, I guess, kind of a catch-all for these three phases, um, even though I kind of keep reflection separate internally, like in my own internal dialogue. But I think um, maybe what I was trying to say before is that these three components are like part of that making meaning cycle, which eventually gets to learning. Like there's, this is where I was talking about, there's like a little bit of an extra component missing from learning. Um, <clears throat> but in this case, what your question is about interpretation and imagination. One, I think, when I think of interpretation, it's, uh, external data or stimuli right uh basically internalized so you like you sit there and you process that even if it's subconsciously or unconsciously um and then something starts to happen i'm trying not to be vague but i'm also trying <laughs> to be vague if that makes any sense <laughs> um i'm not defining these words specifically because uh i think the in interpretation of my interpretation is actually kind of important um and then on the imagination side it's like more of an internalized uh you start with like internal stimuli and then it's externalized uh, and and i would say it's not really externalized right because it all kind of stays in our mind but it that's when it kind of moves from like unconscious to conscious right so like, I see you moving, I hear your thoughts, I hear your, sorry, not your thoughts, but I hear you saying things, right? And I have to spend time to process that, uh, figure out what it is you're saying from my perspective so that I can then respond. And then on the other side, the imagination side, it's me uh, trying to imagine, like, you know, in preparation for this video, for instance, what are the possible things we could be talking about? And then me having like an internal dialogue through these different avenues. So I'm starting to, to process and um, I'm doing the imagination and the reflection part kind of simultaneously, but it's like all contained within my head. Yeah, and I, I worry that I might've given a misleading impression already at the beginning by trying to pit interpretation and imagination as, as separate or opposed kind of phases of thought because there's a lot of imaginative activity in interpretation and uh, an act of imagination can be an interpretive act. So, so I need to be a little bit careful about not trying to draw these as discrete areas or, or processes. But um, I do think that there's something when you're interpreting, you're interpreting 
you've been you've been given something, whether it's a text, a statement, an experience, and you're trying to process it into uh, a form of understanding. You're trying to make sense of that thing that you've been offered. And uh, imagination seems a little bit more of a creative act. So you might be working with givens, memories, perceptual experiences, but instead of trying to be faithful to that experience and and get a grasp on that experience, you play with it. It's it's very playful. I can combine things. I can generalize. I can abstract. I can alter. You know. So so they're kind of different ways of approaching given givenness and thought. Whatever we've been given, we can either try to make sense of that given, or we can play with it and do things with it. Yeah, I think in both of those cases, uh, I don't, I'm not going to use the term making meaning again, but we're essentially trying to establish our boundaries. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think there's, uh, I mean, there's so many different directions to go in from here, but I feel like one thing to kind of point out is the temporality of these processes. Uh, they both rely on past experience uh, to, to provide the material for thought. And yet there's something, it's not just constricted to the present. And so when you talk about drawing boundaries, it's, it's somewhat because the boundaries aren't, aren't already preset, right? If we were only immediately conscious of the present, then imagination would really have a hard time having a role to play, right? It's, it's just being impressed by external stimuli or internal processes. But the temporality of it allows us to draw on the past to experience the present and even to play with a counterfactual, the future, what hasn't happened, what doesn't exist and uh, imagine possibilities or to draw inferences. Um, so this futurity of imagination uh, is, I think, a really interesting aspect of it. You said exactly what I was trying to say, just so much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just drawing off of your vibes and interpreting what you were saying. <laughs> An important skill for us all to have. <laughs> you mentioned this a little earlier, the memory, like the importance of memories to both of these processes. And um, we still very much interpret memories way after the fact, right? We, how many times have you like learned a lesson from something both at that time or even like you're just like whatever and push it aside, but then it like pops back up later in your life and sometimes these memories need a nudge right some new external stimuli forces that experience back into your uh sub and and conscious right um and so then you get another chance to interpret or imagine uh, the future from that and really i think that characterization that you had i think that's probably the most important aspect of this i still don't quite understand where we are uh temporally right like are we true creatures of the present are we some weird creature that because we can imagine the future we actually sort of exist in the future or do we only live in the past because our experiences uh we can only interpret past events like it happens and then the interpretation happens it's not like these things are on a real-time feed and the processing is happening real time even if you study it scientifically we're looking at like nanoseconds apart so yeah, this uh, temporality is one aspect of it, and you're mentioning, you know, the different stages of of our mind and where we're trying to process our our incoming and outgoing thoughts. But there's some other kind of 
I don't I don't want to get too technical, but there's other components of this that I really want to keep in mind. And I'm drawing a little bit on on one of my favorite thinkers, Hans Georg Gadamer. Uh, but one of the questions is, what makes an interpretation valid? Can you just say that something means anything you want it to mean? Or when you're trying to understand something, are some ways of understanding it more correct than others? And is there a threshold? Like it needs to, you know, satisfy some kind of criteria to be a valid understanding of that thing that you're interpreting. What a fascinating question. Um, I really, before I interject, I want to know what he kind of says about that. So uh, one of the pieces that he puts into his uh, hermeneutics, this theorizing about interpretation, is that strikes again. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this whole episode is very heavy on hermeneutics. So I'm trying to, uh, to not be too technical with it. But he uh, talks about how when we're approaching a question, uh, first of all, an interpretation is always an answer to a question. So we're approaching the object that we're interpreting or the experience that we're interpreting for some reason. And whatever that motivation, that, that form of inquiry is, that's going to frame what kind of understanding is satisfactory for what we're trying to do. And then second of all, we want to be able to apply it. It needs to be useful in some way, you know, maybe not practical in the, in the everyday sense, but we want the understanding to be able to be incorporated into our mode of existence and, and something that we can actually understand and work with. Oh, Gadamer. I, uh, like superficially, I don't agree with any of that. <laughs> <laughs> but as I, Tell me more. as I started thinking about it, um, this thought popped into my head and I want to see your reaction as I say it. Um, <laughs> every interpretation is useful. Mm. Uh, that doesn't strike me as immediately obvious. Can you maybe justify that or try and explain it a little bit more? Yeah. Um, I, I was struggling with that idea of the inquiry aspect of interpretation, like essentially needing there to be an inquiry. And I think I could buy into that if the inquiry is just like the way that our brain processes that. Um, mm. And I was also struggling with the original, um, I guess the, maybe it was just the way you phrased interpretation uh, from Gadamer, which was, okay. So, yeah, we should be able to apply it. Yes. Okay. And that's where I got the, that's where I got to the all, all interpretation is applicable or useful. Um, so this is going to come up probably a billion times throughout this recording because I've just been watching a ton of nature documentaries for the past month. And, okay. And Salia started forcing me to watch this other documentary on Netflix called Babies. And I was like really opposed to it, but uh, it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, hmm. And I'll also add in that I spent some time around a uh, our, her cousin's child, who's less than a year old, and... Uh, got me really thinking a lot about interpretation. But there was one specific study in this documentary is about babies that really helped frame my idea around this. And I see it all the time in education. Um, so they did this study where they were trying to see if a baby, like, I, the, I guess they're trying to get to this question of whether babies are experiencing their sense of self 
Hmm. And so what they did was they noticed that like babies turn towards their hand and they move their hand when their eye is looking at their hand. And um, and they did this experiment where they tied both hands to like cups very loosely. So it's very, uh, you know, non harming of the baby. It's just still kind of funny to picture like babies tied (laughs) in a little bed. And I forget how old they were doing. I think it was like three or four months old is what the age is. So we're talking really young. Like every neuron in the brain is extremely fresh. It's only had three months of life experiences. Um, What they found was that when the hand that the baby was looking, what they did was like they tied the hands. They started putting weight in one of the hands. And so the baby's hands would like drop. But the one hand that was not dropped, the baby would look at. And it wouldn't try to pick up the other hand because it like it noticed I'm kind of like doing a little bit of interpretation here myself. Um, but essentially, like they noticed that the other hand wouldn't pick up and the head, the baby's head would not turn towards that side. It wouldn't try to like understand that this hand is like here or not. It only focused on the hand that was moving and they just did it and they kept adding weights to it. And they tried other versions of that experiment. They did one where um, they put a mirror in front of the baby and then they tied the hand that was like, they basically put a mirror here between the baby's head and the hand. And this hand was free. So the baby would look at that hand and in the mirror, even though this hand like was weighted down. So it like wasn't able to move that hand. And they found that the baby didn't try to move that hand. So it like huh. understood that this movement is like it's of its own doing. Huh. And they did another version of it where they used a TV screen instead. So they had a film, a camera aimed at hands. They put a TV here again. And uh, this time like the baby could see in the monitor like, you know, some extra sensory version of itself. Uh, so it sees like its whole, whole body essentially. And it sees its hand over here. This hand again tied to weight, so it's not moving it, uh, but it's looking at the the TV monitor, and it's still moving this hand, thereby like determining that it's experiencing its own its own self through that. And at this mm-hmm. point, the baby's visual field is super super concrete. Uh, sorry, uh, super abstract. It's very blurry, can't see very far. Um, so it's trying to make sense of the world around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went through that little uh, aside just to be able to say like that that experiment, uh, that study uh, kind of cemented something that's already been in my mind is that from a very early age, like essentially since we're born, uh, every thing that we experience has to be interpreted. Mm. And we interpret everything. And to that extent, you know, of experience, that's why I say every interpretation is useful. Gotcha. Uh, so I'm going to be a little bit annoying, right? Um, the categories there are, are go in one direction, not in both directions, right? So if every experience is interpretation, then uh, that doesn't mean that every interpretation is an experience, right? So there might be interpretations beyond making sense of our perceptual experience and other types of 
temporal experience that are not useful. Because uh, interpretation is bigger. It's a broader category than just interpreting experience. Um, I think the way I'm thinking about it, experience is bigger than interpretation. Interesting. I, so I don't want to get bogged down, but uh, if you can, yeah, let me let me push you're... on this just a little bit. Because couldn't you have more than one interpretation for the same experience, and couldn't that be true for all experiences? So doesn't interpretation have to be a broader category than experience? Uh, could you have more than one interpretation of an experience? Um, I think okay. In your example, in your description, what's experience mean? The way I'm hearing, oh, good. the way I'm interpreting that is an event, but I don't think I mean experience as an event. I think I mean experience as like, um, essentially, like I, I guess I I can't define it in a sentence. It basically like only becomes an experience when it's been interpreted and reflected upon gotcha okay great um in that case i'm not going to push anymore in the definitions because we're not being real technical anyway i do want to bring up some other aspects of Gadamer's thinking that i think might help unmuddy some of these waters that we've been muddying <laughs> perfect let's unmuddy <laughs> <laughs> so uh one concept is that of the horizon that uh we we don't ever try to understand independent of context we are perspectival beings that are situated historically, geographically, you know, culturally. Um, and, and so we have a limited horizon within which we can, you know, it's an, it's a, it's an analogy. A physical horizon is as far as you can see, right? So a interpretive horizon is uh, the distance or the boundaries within which you can make sense of what it is you're trying to interpret. Love and it. so there are things that, are beyond that horizon that you're not going to be able to incorporate into your understanding. But horizons are not fixed, yeah. right? Just like a visual horizon, I can go up in elevation and see farther, or I can go down into a valley and have a restricted horizon. I can do the same thing interpretively. I can uh, change the kind of factors that change my context and therefore have broader interpretive scope or, uh, you know, kind of confine what I'm interpreting and to what extent and have a more narrow horizon. Can you um, change the horizon? Uh, like, what's the way, how am I trying to phrase this? Can you change the horizon, like, almost at the same time? Like, us concurrently, maybe, is the word? Like, if I am, like, experiencing it, in, or I should say, if I'm interpreting and my horizon is one thing, can I, like then change that perspective like almost immediately after and then interpret again or because um, the first thing that came to mind was like remembering that experience later and being able to have a new interpretive perspective does that make <laughs> sense yes and in fact that brings in reflection so i just uh dot 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 <laughs> um i would say uh initially... i thought we were unmuddying <laughs> Yeah, we're going to unmuddy, which is why I don't want to throw it reflection in quite yet, because your other question is really good. How voluntary is the perspective changing? Yeah. Thanks. Right. And so I think uh, 
initially we don't realize that we are limited by perspective. I mean, that's kind of the ego is what I experience is what everybody experiences. My, the way I understand the world is how everybody ought to and does understand the world. And so we get surprised when somebody else doesn't have the, like I eat broccoli and I like it and somebody eats it and they don't like it. It's, it's a shock the first time that that happens. Right. Or everybody and agrees so, with Gadamer and some people don't agree with Gadamer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I think initially we don't choose our perspectives or our horizons and we're not even aware that, that that's what's happening. But we do experience horizon shifts. We, we have an aha moment. We, you know, something breaks through and changes our bias or, or provides more context or a different context. And we've had experiences of having a perspective shift so that I think that we can, with practice and awareness, have some voluntaristic control over our perspective and over our horizons. I don't think we have absolute control ever. Uh, there are things that we're not in control of our thinking, <laughs> basically. Um, there are elements that are uh, built into and, and develop our thought independent of our will. Uh, and that gets me to the other element I wanted to bring up real quick is uh, uh, Gadamer calls it historical consciousness. I'm going to set aside the like technical term and just this idea of like we accumulate, right? Our, our, our narrative, our ego, our psychology, whatever you want to call it, is built up over time and it accumulates and ingests further experiences, whether this is perceptual stimuli, uh, cultural norms and activities. We've been talking about values and our preferences and desire. Like this historical consciousness synthesizes all those different components that we've been talking about all season long. And, and that helps establish our perspective and, and where we're trying to understand from. So, between that accumulated historical consciousness and the horizon that can shift and change somewhat uh, voluntaristically and sometimes not, um, I think that gives us a lot of flexibility in, in what we can interpret. The other thing I wanted to ask, um, since you were talking about it, uh, originally when you brought up Gadamer's uh, explanation of interpretation, I kept thinking about how crucial languages in that process but now i can't remember exactly uh what i was latching on to i mean maybe just me trying to speculate and because we're often in tune in a lot of these things uh there's a conceptual element right we've talked in the past about perception and perspective and then desire and values and language is this way of kind of navigating and synthesizing very different kinds of internal inputs and conceptually re relating them in, I'll, I'll say, quote unquote, logical space. Like there's the domain of language that allows us to compare, contrast, and, and integrate these different ideas. 